This is the launch station, the only place you need to look for all things onboarding, implementation, and customer success. Tune in for insights from industry experts every week. Hey everyone, this is Shree. Welcome to another episode of The Launch Station. Every show, we speak with top professionals and thought leaders about all things customer onboarding, implementation services, and customer success. Today, we're going to talk about customer education, the missing link in onboarding success. And we have a popular guest in Bill Kushat. Bill is an expert in customer education, has spent most of his career in learning management, software adoption, and customer success. He's a general manager at Service Rocket, running the LearnDot business, a podcaster with his popular show, Helping Sales Radio, and was the top 25 CS influencer in 2020. Bill has extensive experience in building learning organizations, both in startups and hyper-growth companies. Welcome to the show, Bill. Sri, it's great to be here. I'm excited. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Before we get to our topic, we'd love to know how you make time for all that you do in your everyday life. You've got LearnDot, you're hosting Helping Sales Radio, you do your hikes in the morning, you're also super active on social media. So what's your day like? A typical day is like thinking I'm not doing very much and um, just trying to do one little thing at a time. It, look, there's no magic to it. It's a, it's a, it's a daily struggle for me. Right. I just on a personal level, if I were to just like um, admit things, the struggle of like focusing on what's most important and working on the urgent, I struggle with that every single day. So what I try to do is think about what is an important thing I can do now and then try to do that. I don't always do it well, but I'm at least conscious of that trade off. So that's how I do it all. And I schedule things. I wake up very early in the morning and um, yeah, that's that's. That's it. It's no magic. Got it. So I think your passion for what you're doing probably keeps your energy high. Uh, um, so what's one unexpected insight that sort of pushed you into starting LearnDot? Well, first, I didn't start LearnDot, um, although I am the general manager of LearnDot. But I can tell you how uh, we started it as a company. Um, if we go back to the late 2000s, Service Rocket is the parent company of LearnDot, and Service Rocket was running all of the training, like all of the customer training for Atlassian. So in those days, Atlassian didn't have its own training function. Um, our founder and CEO, Rob Castaneda, uh, persuaded the, the founders of Atlassian they needed training and that he would do it for them. So we ran all that training sort of white labeled, right? If you got JIRA training in 2008 or 10 or, or 12, it was us doing it. And we didn't have at that time a tool to manage it all. It was all very normally managed, manual, calling up customers, selling them courses, and then scheduling that and doing it, right? And not really tracking it. So we built what became LearnDot as a we might call it an ERP for training to manage enrollments and payments and scheduling and content and all and, and all of that. So that's how it came to be. So this was probably 12, uh, maybe 11 years ago that that started. And now we've done is we've offered that now as a product, right? We call it tech enabled service because we're very high touch and service oriented, but we offer that LearnDot to other software companies to run their customer training functions. 
Got it. So this was built for your in-house usage and then you sort of turned it around and made it into a SaaS product. That is correct. Exactly right. Awesome. I'm actually curious about something. You've got this whole maturity model for training and customer education. So what are the key dimensions you look at to judge where customers are on this journey and what does great customer training look like? Yeah, the, the maturity model is kind of important just, and we do assess it, right? For many of our customers who want it. And, you know, if I were to just, look, I could break it down simply by saying, like, if you have no maturity at all and you're doing nothing, what's happening in that kind of a stage is that customers start to ask, can we have training? And a software company says, uh-oh, we don't have training, right? So what? So they're reacting to the customer, right? Maybe the customer needs for it have outpaced our ability to keep up with it. And so what we do is react and we find the smartest person or people on our team to go out and teach and show and tell the customer, click here, click there, right? It's not organized training, but it gets the job done, right? Um, the problem with that is that it's hard work, it's unscalable, it's not, it's not uh, repeatable. And so it's stressful for everyone involved. And every time a customer asks for training, you sort of start all over again. Oh my gosh, it's special. It's a new customer we have to help. And that's this early stage we're reacting to the customer. Um, the next level of that is a, what I would call a performing stage where we finally decide to get out in front of it and create the one or two or three repeatable training topics that need to be covered, right? So a customer asks, can we have training, please? You might ask them one or two questions. Do you, did you buy this module or do, are you on this stage of your implementation? We know what to give them. It might not be perfect, but we can say, oh, you need this class. And we do it and it's two hours long or it's one hour or it's three days, whatever it is. And that becomes repeatable. And then you could sort of dedicate a person or part of a person's time to, to sort of schedule these out, right? Now, every, everything beyond that becomes, okay, we need tools in place. We need to build a team to do other things in training, you know, expand our offerings, let's say, integrate with other tools in our ecosystem, in our stack, right? All those, there's lots of other, there's lots of details in there, but basically now beyond this performing stage, you're, you're sort of building it as a, as a function and not just as a person working hard, I would say. Interesting. Bill, I think it'd be great if you could give us a few examples of companies that you believe do a great job at customer training and customer education. Uh, sure, I can give, um, uh, there's lots of examples. Um, I'll do two or three to show you different kinds of strategies. Um, I'll start with HubSpot because most people have heard of HubSpot. And you know what they did even before the product was mature, when you might say the product wasn't ready for prime time, they started with training very early on. And if, you, if you're in marketing, you know they wrote the book called Inbound. So they wrote a book on inbound marketing to define the space. They also created the inbound marketing certification to help define the space. So what they were doing is educating a market of people to become inbound marketers and invent this thing in marketing called inbound marketing. And so it wasn't specifically product training, although some of the principles they taught in that are applicable in HubSpot. So that's one example. And you know they got to a really good place where they knew how much product people were purchasing who took training. 
And they knew that that was more product that people who weren't taking training. So they really figured that out over time. It took some time, but that's what they did. Um, another example is what Cloudera did. They actually hired a customer education role at employee number 20. They hired that before they had marketing. They hired that before they had customer success because to them, the most scalable thing they thought they could do was to go out and teach classes. What is Hadoop? What is Cloudera? They had a class called Introduction to Data Science, right? And so people who came to those classes paid money, paid premium prices. They kept raising the price of their training courses because everybody wanted to get into that. And that became a lead source, right? That's all the marketing they needed very early on because people would show up at the hotel ballroom in the big city near where they lived and took the class. And then the marketing person could be in there giving out the logos and the hats and t-shirts. And you know, this is all a marketing exercise. And there's a teaching of the technology exercise. Um, but also it's customer success because customers would show up to these training courses and they would learn what's possible in their environment um, just beyond, hey, I kind of know how to work the functionality of this thing. Now I'm learning what other what use cases are by hearing from other students and other customers and other prospects. So that's another example of someone that started with customer uh, education early, but did it in a scalable way by saying, hey, this is marketing and customer success. It's more than just teaching features. Uh, maybe the third example is Atlassian because, you know, if you go to Atlassian University, they have numerous offerings from everything from free to privately on-site paid. Well, I mean, no one's going on-site in 2021, right? But figuratively, they have all these courses at different price points, at different offerings. So I could take a, you know, a beginner JIRA class that's free or a paid version or a private version or a custom version. So they've grown their offerings over time because they have certain topics they cover agile and content and confluence and you know uh, bug tracking and devops all these pro in their products and then they offer it for different customers at different segments in different methodologies and at different price points so that's a really good way of looking at it too is you can start with one method at one price point and then grow your offerings over time even with the same topic got it so it feels like they're trying to meet the customer wherever they are irrespective of how early or where exactly they are on the journey. Yes. And what's intimidating is that you go to Atlassian University and you look at that and you say, holy cow, there's like, look at all these product courses and look at all the methods they offer it. And you see scores of offerings, right? And what you don't appreciate when you look at it today is how long it took them to get there. And they, they really did take a one thing at a time approach you know, their attitude in the sort of the mid 2010s was that they could accomplish one big training project per year, right? And they did, of course, lots of other little things, but I mean, one big, like rolling out e-learning or rolling out a certification program or rolling out private on-site training, like all these different offerings in a sense was one at a time. And now you look at it, you say, wow, this is huge. And it's a big, you know, it, it generates leads. It's a moneymaker. It helps adoption, all the stuff. It generates all the evangelists, all the people who love JIRA and show up at the conference. And now they do the training at the conference to get certified and all that stuff. So it just, it, it happened over time. It doesn't, you don't wake up one morning and build something that big. You start small and you, and you build it. That's again, very interesting, Bill. One thing I'm wondering about is 
there's this whole movement around product-led growth. There's also tech touch onboarding using self-service tools like Watfix, WalkMe, Pendo. So as a SaaS company, how should I think about this? When do I need to invest in customer education? How can all of these coexist in the future? Like product training versus offering learning around the core problem that we're solving. Do you have a framework in mind for this? Uh, yes. And first of all, before I talk about a, a, a framework to look at this is I'll take a step back and say, there really isn't the right answer to this, right? There isn't one way to do it because you take the Cloudera model and what they started off with was in person, in the ballroom at the hotel, high paid, high touch, on-site training. And, and we all know what happened with Cloudera and they, you know, acquired their competitors and they've grown into a, you know, the leader in the space for all kinds of reasons, not just that, but that's just one way to do it. Now, other companies do everything, um, you know, um, self-paced, um, online. They might even start with just doc documentation, right, as a means for, you know, helping customers learn the software. And so that could be successful too. You know, Dropbox is an example of, of how you might do that. Um, or Miro for that matter, right? So um, you have to start with the premise that there isn't one of those ways that's better than the other. What you have to sort of think about is what's going to work for us. And so if I think of four things in a framework you might think about is there's, there's four items. One would be enabling your customers. Another would be growing your customers. Another would be winning new customers. And another would be creating markets of customers. So briefly, each one is like, if, if your priority is to enable existing customers, then in general, what you want to do is product training for existing customers and get them up to speed. So onboarding, you know, cause everything up front has to happen pretty well for to set you up for success. That that's the implementation process. That's the training that's the enablement, that's the communication plan. I mean, all the stuff that you might do in an, in an onboarding scenario. Um, and that would be your priority. If your priority is to grow your existing customers to become bigger or better customers, you have probably a different priority in your training. Your training might be helping customers understand what's next and helping customers learn your sticky features. Because you know everyone in software knows that customers buy our software and we say to ourselves, gosh, you could do 10 things, but our customers only do two things. And it drives us nuts. And product managers go, why don't they use feature number seven? It's the best feature we have. And you, when you're growing your customers, you have to you know, change your priorities on helping them get to the next thing, the thing they don't know they can do. Um, your priority could be winning new customers. You might have a top of the funnel priority. And so your training needs to be out in the public, right? Like Cloudera did, like Atlassian does, like Databricks does, like HubSpot does. You shouldn't be gating it. You shouldn't be hiding it. You should be making it public and inviting everyone to your training because you gain trust. You teach people what your technology is. You know, if you're in a, if you are in a, in an advanced emerging forward-looking technology, your sales team is having a hard time selling it because prospects say, I don't even know what it is. I don't have people to do it. I can't run it. I don't have, I don't know what a DevOps engineer is. I have no idea what you're talking about. I can't buy that. And so there's this, there's this learning that has to happen before they can even conceive a purchasing from you. Um, now, your, your fourth uh, part of this framework, 
and your priority might be that you want to educate the market and create a virtuous cycle of people willing to buy your software. So just, let's just talk about, if you go back in time to the olden days, Cisco and Microsoft, their certifications are so important that hiring managers put them in job descriptions. People go out and get them just so they can put them on their resume, just so they can apply to jobs that are in the job description. You can't get one of those jobs unless you have a CCNA or a Microsoft certified XYZ. AWS is now doing the same thing. You probably can't get a job running an AWS um, cloud unless you are certified. That's how important it's becoming. So what by taking a certification approach, you're, you're creating a market of buyers and this virtual cycle of co companies can buy from you because they can hire people to do it. And the people who are doing it are going out to get that certification. There's this triad of <laughs> cycle of people um, clamoring to get this quote credential, right? And so if you think about it in those four things, I, I, I say a management team should say, okay, what are our priorities? And then you zero in on those things. You just sort of like work your way through it over time. Wow, that was wonderful, Bill. I think that's a great way to think about it. And I'm going to give this some thought around my own product with this framework in mind. So what are the usual roadblocks in setting up customer education-related programs in companies? Well, one important roadblock is, is it's a lot of work. I mean, forget the budget part and forget the convincing of uh, a founding or a, or a management team that this is important. That's all obviously hard, just like anything you would do in any kind of organization, but it's a lot of work. Okay. And so to sit down and get your screen capturing software and start, you know, click here and explaining things, you know, it can be done quick and dirty, but no matter how you cut it, there's a time consuming thing about, and not only thinking about what has to be taught, but then explain thinking about how it should be taught and then actually doing the work, right? So it's this, it's the typical process of instructional design where you analyze the need, you design the, the, the instruction and then you develop it, right? That's time consuming. And no matter how you cut it, there is, look, let me back up. I would think about it this way. If you're going to think about making training, you have to have some way of, of forecasting how long it's going to take to produce the content and then publish it. And so you should be thinking of ratios of work to produce training. So if you just start from nothing, think to yourself, it's probably gonna take us about 50 hours of work to produce one hour's worth of content for training. That could be higher, it could be lower, but to model it out, you gotta do that. So if you, if you really dig into that math, okay, 50 hours of work times three that's 150 hours. That's basically all the hours in a month, okay? That someone can work an eight hour day. So that means someone on your team will need to spend a full month to produce about three hours worth of content. Wow, that sounds really intimidating. It is intimidating. And yes, it could be lower, but it, I, I can promise you it's not gonna be much lower than 25 hours of work to do the same hour. So you might be able to squeeze six hours out of that, right? But if you are a perfectionist culture, if you are a design oriented culture, that number is going to be a lot higher because some 
UX designer or some design oriented product manager is going to say, wait a minute, the graphics have to be better. The audio has to be better. We need better UI on the interface for the training. So let's, it's going to take you 250 hours of work to produce an hour of content. So you have to sort of, this to me is the biggest barrier, right? And if you can't get, and, and the reason it's a barrier is because a lot of these product, going back to your comment, the product led growth software company is going to want to start off with this self-paced training because everything should be scalable, right? And so the trade-off is you have to prepare for that length of time it takes to get the content out. It's gonna take a long time before you can start to launch things, even as even if you're agile, if you're gonna do self-paced, just like it's just time consuming. So you have to prepare for that. Now, it might take you two or three or four or five months to do that, guess what? Your software has had four releases since then and now buttons have moved around. And now what do you do? You have to go back to the drawing board. So you have to really be careful um, uh, with this approach and thinking about, well, do we really want to start off with self-paced training? You have to be committed to the investment of, of, take, of time to do that. That's very interesting and insightful. This is super helpful. I think for anyone thinking about this right now, one way to think of it is if you have like 10 enterprise customers that are going to onboard in the next two quarters, and if you're going to spend so many hours with each of them, then probably the ratio looks a certain way. But then when you think about this as, you know, the next 20 customers, and if you're going to keep repeating this whole training, then maybe it makes sense that you should have started earlier and got some of that training work done. Maybe so. And, you know, you also, if, you, if we think in terms of, you know, Scrum and figuring it out, right? Scrum is for figuring it out, right? That's why you have these sprints. And so... If you invest too much upfront in training without having contact with the customer after every sprint to show them, so somebody what you've done and to teach them some iteration of it, then you're doing all of these cycles. And three months later, if you do that, the risk is you didn't, you're not teaching the right stuff, right? So that needs to, you need to be aware of that. Now, in your scenario where you have 10 customers you need to onboard in the first three months, you know, my personal bias would be get someone on your team and do the Zoom sessions and teach, 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 teach. Those are your, those are your revs, right? Every time you teach it, the customer says, I don't get it. Or why did you teach me this before you taught me that? I don't understand. And you figure out, oh, I need to reword how I do this. And then every time you do that, you can improve the content right? And now once you have the content and, and the learning objectives and the sort of like how it should be designed, not only do you have live training content that, that can be reorganized and published for customers that want that, but now you have probably something good foundationally that you can build into your self-paced training, which is a little more permanent or longer lasting because it's hard to go back and, and do that all the time. So essentially do the hard work live a few times and let that understanding come from, you know, what's the customer looking for, what's resonating, what's leaving them stumped and, you know, take that feedback and then start creating the content. That, that is what I would tell almost everyone for sure, because of the reason that is. And second of all, um, it is a mechanism to really understand your customer. Well, if you're with your customer, in a live class, like Zoom, whatever, right? T showing them things and then answering questions and doing the cycle of, I don't get it, I'll, I'll re-explain it, I don't get it, re-explain it. 
you not only are you helping the customer learn because they can clarify things, but you are really understanding what the customer is and isn't understanding what they do and don't do, right? So if you're a product manager and you're not sitting in on these sessions, that's crazy talk. You need to be, this is the fastest, best way, you know, this is the next best thing to your to doing your value proposition canvas. You know, this is how you update your value proposition canvas, as far as I'm concerned. Now, that doesn't mean that's the only way to do it, because there's lots of software companies that start off with this self-paced methodology. And if you are a product-led, if your strategy is product-led, and you're a company like Dropbox or Miro or Asana or, you know, these kinds of companies, when everything is, it, it's designed from the start to be self-service, self-sign-up, freemium model, you're on your own go to the docs, then you need to figure out how to do this with self-paced, but you can't overdo the content too soon because you'll spend too long and you'll miss the mark. Got it. So if you're an org starting this whole customer education function in 2021 and you're past that stage of doing a few teaching exercises with customers, how do you go about it now? What are the steps involved in creating the customer education function in your team? First thing is um, figuring out what you're trying to accomplish, what the goals are. I mean, this sounds sort of, you know, stereotypical or cliche, but you have to know what you want to achieve. Is your goal to onboard customers faster or better? Is your goal to make more money? Because you can sell training. A lot of software companies make six, make seven and eight figure revenue numbers on training. That might be a, a goal. Um, your goal might be, we need to get people to adopt the software, use the software better or more, right? So now you have to define precisely what that means. Does that mean login every day? Does that mean login? Does that mean time spent in the product? Does that mean clicking on certain things in the product? Does that mean adding more users to the product? I mean, if you're, if you're going to get into the product adoption goal, you got to really uh, define that well, right? If your product isn't ready for prime time, but you want to educate the market, what is, what, what's the goal there? Do we want people to sign up for our free trial? Is this a marketing exercise, right? So once you get that goal, now you can go back to that framework I talked about earlier and then figure out, okay, what should we focus on? Okay. Now, look, if you don't know anything, then just get, get on your product training and teach your customers you know, the features of your product until the cows come home, right? You just like teach, you know, you could do that and that's always going to work. Um, but what but you're going to get limited at some point because the features always change for one. Um, so goals have to come first. You have to know what your priority is. And then that shapes what part of the framework you do. That's great. You know, one of the things we keep hearing about in customer education is this concept of train the trainer, Right. Uh, is that good enough for adoption and for getting your customer to use your product really well? What dimensions should you train the trainer on? And, you know, is it just about the product or should you go beyond that? Okay. I have a couple of answers to this. I, I, and I don't have the answer, but I have some ideas on this. One is I don't think it's enough because what's happening is you're now going to rely then on the customer to train their people. And now you are diffusing responsibility to somebody else. Okay. Now you may not want to invest heavily and take that much responsibility because that requires people and technology and processes and organization to, to really do that. So you may have to do that, 
But if you're going to rely on your customer to deliver the training and you train the trainer, number one, the train, the trainer has to be really well organized, right? Now, look, software companies do this with their partner programs all the time, right? Software companies train their partner network, and then their partners go out and run training and run implementations and sell the product, resell and all that stuff. So there's certainly examples of train the trainer working because you just look at partner networks that are gigantic as a means of scaling. So look, um, however, if your customer isn't already set up for that, then I wouldn't even bother bringing it up. This is why you need to have the training offerings that your customers can sign up for. So in the absence of your customer having trainers capable of learning and teaching, this is why you create your own software company name university on your website and create the catalog and the schedule and the, and the e-learning and the videos and all this that, that you can tell your customer, send your employees here, right? You can also create private scheduled live classes or private um, e-learning classes just for some customers, right? You get your first enterprise customer and it's Telefonica or Toyota and it's big company. They may want something personalized or private for them. So you set up a personal schedule for them and then you communicate and work it out. Hey, send your employees to this every Tuesday and Thursday. We're running the admin course and your 8,000 administrators can just go through this and you just do it all year long. Now, when they lose employees and hire new employees, that schedule is up and you can take care of it and you plan it out. And it's not hard to resource for that because it's planned out and scheduled and usually customers pay for that. Now, companies like Toyota or big enterprises like that may have their own, let's say, technology training, learning and development departments who are capable of doing that. And if that's the case, then by all means, take advantage of that. Um, and I would just really build a partner with that person who's in charge of learning and development. Make that, try to build that relationship like they're an extension of your team so that you can help them do it, right? Um, you might have to have a learning management system that, can, that, that you host it and their instructors can be booked in through that or their content, or they may say, you need to give us content to put on our own learning system in which case you're going to have to author something using certain learning standards, uh, which we could talk about, but to, so that the, what you're building will work extensively in various LMSs. That's a hard thing to do, right? So uh, um, you have to really be good at your e-learning standards if you're going to do something like that with e-learning. So that's just, that's just a couple of ways I would think about train the trainer. I think it can be very good. Your customer needs to be set up for it. Makes sense. So if they've got their own LND division and trainers in place, then it's worth investing into. You also brought up something about having the right standards for e-learning. Can you expand on that? Uh, sure. There is an e-learning uh, authoring standard called SCORM, S-C-O-R-M, um, Shareable Content Object uh, Reference Model. And most LMSs are designed to um, speak to content that's created in that standard with how content is tracked, with how content speaks to the LMS, 
and can be distributed and then tracked and reported and all that stuff. And so most e-learning authoring tools are also designed to produce content in that standard, right? And so there's just some things to learn about that. Thankfully, most of the time, the LMS and the authoring tool um, are designed to the standard and what you produce can be put in almost any LMS and quote, it will work, right? Uh, but there's unknowns, just like anything with any standard, you know, someone's LMS might have an update, a release last week, and all of a sudden, you know, tracking status between completion of two modules no longer works. And now you have customers that say, hey, I completed this, but it doesn't say I'm done. And now you have to start troubleshooting <laughs> and wow. figuring out what the problem is, right? So that's all I mean by that is, you know, you could, you know, so if, if your customers are asking for that, most software companies are probably not thinking about that and not set up for it, right? Makes a lot of sense, Bill. The next question is something that I've struggled with in the past with my own team. How do you make things stick from your training? What are some tricks to prevent customers from like going back to zero after you've finished all of your training with them? Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a lot, there's a lot of things going on here. Um, but one would be, uh, the, it, it's a really broad concept called what's in it for me. Instructional designers have this guiding principle that whatever they are creating in an instructional sense needs to somehow answer the question for the student, what's in it for me? That's a challenge because in enterprise software, normally the person who purchased the software is not the person using the software. You know, the big fancy ding dong VP is the one that bought this whiz bang technology to change the world, right? Trans our digital transformation is going to be complete now that we get this fancy new software. And then they say, okay, team, go use it now. So now you have a whole team of people who are used to working in a certain way are now told work in this new way. Oops. You know, and you start to say, well, why do I need this? I have sticky notes. Why do I need this? I have a spreadsheet. Why do we need this? I have email, right? This is just more work for me. And so to make the connection between, um, to help the learner, the customer realize, oh, if I do this, something will be better in my life. That's just fundamentally what to do. Now, the, the, the way an instructional designer would do that is to really analyze what the job of that person is and then to design it in such a way that they can accomplish that job or those jobs, right? Um, and so that, that, you know, I'm speaking in sort of conceptually, right? Cause there's a million ways to, to slice this onion, but um, you have to, I go back to value proposition design, right? If you look at the customer profile on that value proposition canvas, and if those of you who don't aren't familiar with this, I would look at value proposition canvas on the customer profile side, you are analyzing what jobs the customer has to do in their life, in their job, what gains they're trying to accomplish or what things they want to make better or the pains they want to avoid, right? Now, most software training is feature, feature, feature. And most software training is let's start with this tab. And in this tab, you could do these things. And in the next tab, you could do these things. But nobody cares because they don't even know what the software is for. Like they don't know how it fits into their job. We're leaping right to how, and we never talk about why and what. And so in, in design, you need to figure out, oh, these people are doing a job. It might be 
um, you know, doing pull requests, or it might be, you know, um, inviting people to projects, you know, to collaborate with people. And so those are jobs to do, whether they're using software or not. So you, it, the more you can get your software training to be designed in the context of the job the person is doing, the easier it is for me as a customer to make the connection to, oh, I'm a project manager. I do resource planning and communication and status updates and reporting, right? And so, oh, I see. I can do my status updates in this software, not here's how to use a status update tab. Because you say, well, I already do status updates. Why do I need a tab for that? I do it with sticky notes that you might say. And I'm being silly when I say it that way. But in a sense, my frame of reference as a, as a customer is what I already do. So the, the instructional designer needs to take some responsibility in getting into the head of the customer, what they already do and bringing them in, so to speak. Right. And I think the value proposition design is basically the best way to sort of analyze and design training because of that jobs, gains, and pains exercise of building a really good customer profile. Again, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's an exercise worth doing, not just from the training perspective, but even from your general business perspective. So you can take that and then apply it also to your training and education. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And when, and when you say, you know, um, quote, I struggle with this, right? Engaging the people in the classroom, you know, that's a real, Almost everybody does. That's a, that is so relatable to everyone listening who does training, right? How do I get people to want to do this? Um, and so the closer you can get to the person's actual job, like empathy is, is required here and really understanding gains and pains and jobs. Somehow, there's no magic formula for this, but somehow in there is getting into the heads of your customers and making it relatable. Got it. I guess even using the right examples throughout the process might help them. That's a really good point, actually, because, and, and, you know, back to what I said earlier, like, why would you do live training? It's not scalable and I can't get to all my, well, your first 10 customers, how could you not do live training? I mean, are you afraid to talk to your own customers? Do you not want to have customers? I mean, the customers are going to tell you everything. All the things you're talking about, like the real life examples, they'll say things and use language that, you can use in your e-learning later with other customers to make it relatable because you're going to be able to use the language of your customers. Like, Oh, my VP wants me to get reports out, you know, every week. And Oh my gosh, these reporting tools are so hard. And so you can say in your training, we know reporting is hard. It really is difficult to get, but if you understand the data model, it makes things easier. Let's talk about that. Oh, you're going to make reporting for me easier. Oh my gosh. So now, that's the magic of like actually talking with customers, right? There's no, what did Steve Blank say in his customer development manifesto? There are no facts inside the building. You got to get outside the building and talk to customers. I'm such a huge uh, fan of that. And I think training live in Zoom, right? Is just one of the best ways to do that. Got it, Bill. One of the things you've said earlier is that customer training is a force multiplier. Why do you say that? Ah, and I got this from one of our customers um, who says this a lot. And look, force multiplier is another way of saying scalable, really, right? You're saying, I want to do one, I want to put one input into this machine and I want five inputs, five outputs to spit out the other end. And so if you just, you know, if you oversimplify it, 
if you go back to the Cloudera example of hiring an education role as employee number 20, right? And then doing a lot of live training and treating it as marketing and treating it as training and treating it as customer success, you could imagine one input training spit out some outputs that included revenue because they were selling training and, you know, one, two, three, four, five thousand bucks a day or a week. Number two, you're getting leads that become customers. Number three, you're teaching people how to use your product, which is not easy to use. Number four, you're enabling existing customers who join the training, who are learning things they didn't know they could do. So that's four outputs from one input. So that's a force multiplier. And then if you go beyond that, and if you get good at data, you can figure out, oh, people are using the product more, maybe. They're logging in more, they're adding more users, they're logging in more often, they're spending more time in it. All the product use metrics you can come up with. Um, now you go one step beyond that and you say, our customers renewing? What's our net revenue retention? Our customers grow, spending more money on the product than they would have otherwise because they're buying more modules or they're adding more users or they're adding more, whatever the value metric is for your product, right? So now I just listed seven, I think, outputs from one input. So that's why right. I'm biased, right? Because, but I think that customer training is just, a mu just as much a growth function as marketing or sales or customer success or any other thing that you might say we need to do to grow our business. We're going to do better marketing. We're going to do better sales. We're going to do better customer success. I think customer training is right in there with a discipline that helps the business as a whole grow, not just can I help a customer use our features. It goes way beyond that. Perfect. Well, now we're moving to the next part of our podcast, which is the rapid fire section. And here's your first question. What's the best book you read in 2021? Uh, I read a lot of books. If you don't, know, don't go to my Goodreads, you might be overwhelmed. <laughs> I go through a lot of books. And so it's really hard for me to, I would have to say there's a book called, I read fiction and nonfiction. I read all kinds of stuff, but I'd have to say a book called The High Speed Company. The subject, the subtitle is creating urgency and growth in a nanosecond culture. And so I prefer speed over perfection. That's part of my attitude. So when I saw this book, I'm like, I had to read this book. Um, the author is Jason Jennings. And what surprised me about this book, I was thinking with a title like that, the book is going to be fast, 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 work harder, work faster, stay up all night, just type, move your fingers faster on the keyboard, right? It's not that at all. I mean, if you look at the table of contents of this book, the, the, they're talking about purpose and and mission and values and principles and, and the customer and transparency. In other words, if you do all those things right, it's a scalable thing, meaning people in your company know what to do. They don't sit around saying, what should we do? And they have six months worth of meetings to think about things because principles are defined well, because there's a purpose and because people are trained well, because there's a focus on talking to customers. More people know what to do in the moment. Things just go faster. And we don't have to work harder or faster to do it. And that was the genius of this book. It was just mind blown for me. And uh, I know most people listening probably already get all this stuff, but to me, it was mind blowing how good that book. So that book is called The High Speed Company. Nice. That sounds like a good read that I should add to my list. So what's one trend that you foresee going forward in the customer education and training space? Uh, to me, I think software companies need to think about 
the school they are going to build to educate people about their domain. Okay, so this is like way beyond um, the product training, right? If I sell project management software, I think it's crazy that I'm not teaching the world the way to do project management. And the way I know that is because there's something called the Project Management Institute that exists in the world. And they have 500,000 members and hundreds of thousands of certified project managers. And, you know, the revenue on that business alone is $200 million, something like that, right? Someone can fact check me on that, but that's what the numbers are. Every single one of those people that goes through those programs from through PMI uses software in their job, right? Why project management software companies aren't trying to own how project management should be done is insane to me because every project management software vendor company founder has an idea in their head about how projects should be done and they built software to do that. Now take any domain you want, onboarding, right? In, in your case, or sales. Salesforce could have redefined how people sell and not just sold software to do that. They could have owned, they could have been the new Zig Ziglar and Brian Tracy, all these salespeople, you know, the top people of the world of selling. You know, Salesforce could have owned that. No, they chose not to, and that's nothing wrong with that. But I'm just thinking, if you're going ahead, if you're not thinking about building the school, because look, Udacity and Cloud Academy and, and online uh, learning companies like this are teaching, are teaching your customers about how to do DevOps, how to do autonomous driving engineering, how to do AWS, how to do Azure, how to do big data, how to do digital marketing. And they're all doing it and the attention and the eyeballs are in, in Udemy and Udacity and um, Cloud Academy and all these. And if I go through Cloud Academy, I'm not going to AWS directly. I'm going somewhere else to do that. And so I think that's a missed opportunity um, for software companies to own the education of people at, to, to their point of view in the world. I think you already gave us a great example of HubSpot. And I think probably Drift is also doing something good in this direction. Totally Drift, Drift is, yep. I mean, the, you know, the whole communication and chat, uh, chat ops or um, conversational marketing, right? Get rid of all your forms, talk to people. That's a discipline of marketing that, that Drift is owning now. Anyone that comes into that space is going to have Drift on their mind when they need a chat sales and marketing solution. Perfect. Moving to the next question, Bill. What's your goal for 2021? I can only have one. <laughs> I can only have one goal. <laughs> um, well, certainly we have uh, big goals in our Learn Dot business, right? Mm -hmm. To um, we have a they're pretty big. Um, and personally, I have a goal to run three ultra marathons this year. And in order to do that, I need to run maybe 40% more mileage and vertical climbing in my daily running <laughs> in order to go accomplish that. So I really want to um, run the Broken Arrow Sky Race. I really want to run the Tahoe Rim Trail. These are you know, 50K and 80K races in the mountains and they're tough and I'm scared to, to, to achieve them. So just on a personal level, those are the goals I'm thinking about now, aside from business. Great answer, Bill. We're now moving to the last section of our podcast. I'll be asking you some questions from our online community for customer onboarding called Preflight. 
and also from our audience on Twitter and LinkedIn. So here's the first one. Lots of companies in SaaS do their implementations for free, but you say that we should charge for training. So at what stage does this flip over? Uh, again, there is no stage for that. That's completely strategic. Cloudera did paid training from the beginning. Now, Cloudera is open source commercial software company. So services is a revenue stream, right? It's built into the DNA of what they do, right? So that's culturally in that kind of a business, that's what you do. So for a SaaS company, there are plenty of SaaS companies that make seven and eight figure revenue streams from training. In fact, if I recall, Zuora three years ago hired, had a job posting for a VP of customer training. And one of the requirements in there was that they wanted to build a seven figure training business. And the requirement was, have you done that somewhere else? So Zuora wow. is, is, is as SaaS as any company out there. And they're doing, they want it, their goal is to do a seven. I don't, I don't know what their revenues are now for training, but you can go down the list. There's SaaS companies all over the place. So my, my point is, you don't have to do paid training last. In fact, you could do paid training first. That could be the first thing you do. I think um, it's a mistake to assume you have to start for free because it's much more difficult to raise your price than it is to lower the price later, right? If you start off and everything is free and then one day you wake up and say, okay, now you have to pay, that's harder than starting off with pay. Especially if, if a customer wants something private and personal and just for them because they're special because they're an enterprise, the first thing out of your mouth should be fine. It's ten thousand dollars a day. Fine, I'm happy to. I'll be there tomorrow. You know, it's like of course, right? If you want something Same. for free, here it is. We have e-learning for this, right? Or we have our weekly Tuesday, you know, one-hour webinar to show you the right. So that so you so there's choices and so there isn't a stage. The point is, it's a strategic choice you know, to value yourselves and to deliver a value and to capture some of that value. I mean, that's the whole concept of this. Makes sense. What are the KPIs you track to know the success of your training program? Okay, well, sales. I mean, that's one for sure. A lot of our customers, that's the primary objective. Um, the second would be, uh, so you can forecast that out, right? If you do your annual plan, you forecast your sales. The second one would be enrollments. Are people signing up? In, and you can forecast that out 10 students this month and then 20 students next month and then 50 and then 50. Okay. So there now then you could do completion rates. Our customers completing your training. That would be another metric. Um, another metric would be how many certificates or certifications are we delivering because customers have taken the test or done the training, right? That's another one. Now, if we, those are all the training activity metrics, right? Now, the hard part and the and the really good part is now how do you connect that with your business outcomes? Now you have to make a leap into your CRM and start to look, okay, customers that take training, other metrics would be, are they buying more product? Are the is the value of the opportunities in your CRM higher for those people than people that didn't take training? Are people renewing at higher rates? Are people uh, expanding their renewals and buying more modules? Um, you also had the product use metrics, logins, adding users, spending more time in the product, using other modules or functions in the product. So you could go that way too. So there are numerous uh, metrics. And so you can imagine everything I just said, there could be 20 or 30 metrics in there. 
and there's activity metrics of the training, sales, enrollments, completions, certificates. And then there's the what's happening on the business side to say more, are we selling more product? Are we renewing more? Is the, are we using the product more? Got it. What do you do when your trainees aren't very serious about your training session? There's, there's several ways to look at this. One is, now I assume what we're talking about is uh, that there's probably an instructor involved, a live trainer to know if someone's right. not serious. Is that right? Okay. Yep. So um, a good instructor and someone who knows training delivery methods can probably, they have skills to work that out by getting people involved, by asking questions, by anticipating questions, by get calling people by their first name and sort of making it real for the people. There's an art and science to this instruction, which pulls people in the personality and the likability and the anticipating questions and really understanding people with empathy. There's that element of it. And that's a skill that could be learned by any, you know, by people. Um, then there is the instructional design part of it. Is the course designed in such a way that it is getting into the heads of the people on the class, right? Or is it just like tab, 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 tab. That's not gonna work, right? There's that element of it. The third element is maybe you don't care. Maybe who cares? If you have training and there's 10 people in your class and two people are engaged, deal with the two people. If you're gonna to try to spend all your time on the 10th person that's not paying attention, you probably are wasting your time. What you want to do is focus on the two people that do care, right? And find those people in your class. Now, the third thing I'll say is something that Simon Sinek talks about doing any change initiative. He likes to say that you should be excluding people. Like if there's a new change, you know, he goes to the diffusion of innovation model and the uh, technology adoption life cycle. He would say, that you only want to invite and include the early adopters, the innovators and the visionary people, right? Exclude everybody else. No, 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 no. This is not for you. This is for these people, right? And, and you wanna keep doing that until the other people are begging to come in. How come I wasn't invited? I wanna join this, why can't I come? And um, I don't know exactly know how you would pull that off, but if you really wanted to get people to evolve, uh, engaged only invite people who are likely to engage, right? So that's right, right. Yeah, get the client to handpick the folks who they believe would be interested and curious to try out new things. Actually, actually, yes. In fact, workplace from Facebook, you know, they they have their communication tool. They have a mm -hmm. private enterprise communication tool. One of the one of the five steps in their implementation process is define the champions and get them involved first. Handpick these special employees who are the ones that really get it and really care and really wanna be part of it and can't wait to get in and are just gonna sink, you know, go all over the office and tell people, this is the greatest thing in the world, you gotta use this. <laughs> and get those people first. Everyone else can wait, right? And that's why they can roll out software to gigantic companies like Starbucks and Walmart and Nordstrom, you know, um, because they, they, take, they take that approach. Okay, we're down to our last question, Bill. What's your advice for future customer success leaders responsible for customer success and customer education? Frankly, it's, it's value proposition design, right? Because if you are running customer success or customer education or professional services for that matter, the time you spend really understanding your customer is time well spent. And I'm a convert to this question because I'm my personality is I don't want to spend time on all that 
sticky note stuff, right? That's wasted time. I want to get in there and just start talking to customers and teaching them things and showing them things. But, um, you know, taking the time to do this and understanding the jobs they're doing, the gains they want to achieve and the pains they want to avoid helps you really figure out what the customer needs. So that could be training. That could be feedback to give the product team. That could be creating customer success plans that address implementation needs or ongoing use needs, right? And so the world opens up to you when you do that. And so you don't go in with a pre-ordained solution to a problem that, that, that you don't know exists yet. Like I might say the solution to every problem is training because that's my bias, right? And yet if I do a proposition, a value proposition design process uh, from Strategizer, those guys, then I step back and say, wait, what's wrong with just doing better documentation? That'll help. For example, as an example, so that's what I would say. Right. Value proposition design to me is an unsung skill that not enough of us are using. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Bill. It was super useful and super fun chatting with you today. Sri, it was great. I loved it. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. And folks, thanks for tuning in. If you missed our previous episodes, subscribe to our podcast. And if you aren't part of our pre-flight community, do join us to get more exclusive content on all things onboarding, implementation, and customer success. Thank you. Thank you.